The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and today's episode is an interview with Adam McElwee of Wicked Phase Springs Eternal. Adam is also a former original member of Tiger's Jaw. He plays in the band Pay for Pain. He helped co-found Goth Boy Click and more. One of the reasons Adam and I caught up is to discuss the new self-titled Wicked Phase album. We got into some of the influences behind the album, including folk rock groups like Fairport Convention and the Pentangle, as well as 90s dance music and other non-musical influences as well. We also talked about guest vocalist Zola Jesus, co-producer Ben Greenberg of Uniform, and more. In addition to talking about the new record, we did some career-spanning talk from Adam's early days coming up in the Scranton, Pennsylvania scene to forming Tiger's Jaw, to eventually leaving Tiger's Jaw and going solo as Wiccaphase, and then how he met other members who would come to form Goth Boy Click, including the late Lil Peep, and Adam also reflects on Peep's impact on culture and how that's only risen since his untimely death. Before we get to our chat, just a quick mention that listeners of the Brooklyn Vegan Podcast can also get 30% off of their first year's membership at DistroKid by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. That link's also included in the description of this episode and you can click directly from there. If you're unfamiliar with DistroKid, it's an awesome service for musicians that allows you to easily upload your music to all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and more. DistroKid allows you to do automatic revenue splits, so collaborators and co-writers can get paid too. It provides you with an artist page that links to your music on all streaming services. It allows you to add lyrics, credits, and liner notes, and more. Again, you can get this discount at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. Link in the description below. And with that, here's my chat with Adam McElwee. So, hey, Adam, how's it going? Not bad. How about yourself? Pretty good. Um, it is really hot in New York today, and I don't have any fans or ACs on, so the <laughs> podcast sounds better. So, <laughs> I'm at a... Uh, um... I'm at a lake house that I'm renting for the summer. I'm in the basement right now. And uh, the basement is cool, but it's incredibly hot everywhere else. And there was like, um, I thought it would be like an aesthetic choice to not have any air conditioning upstairs, but um, that's it's not going to last. <laughs> yeah. Well, the basement looks cool. I mean, I, I feel it's, like I see like a big chessboard and like a garage door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, we're actually recording this on the release day of your new record. Um, How does it feel to have it out in the world? Have you looked at what people have said about it yet? I I have. You know, I did a like a early access type thing um, on my Twitch channel last night, and that felt like. I was more nervous about that than uh, like the actual release. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Just because if like the people, you know, people who care enough to join that um, didn't like it, then that would not be a good sign. But uh, it went really well. The the feedback has been has been positive so far, and, and even today, the feedback has been really uh, really good. So uh, yeah, I feel good about it. 
That's awesome. I think it's an awesome record. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, So I want to talk about some of the styles of music on the record because I feel like, I mean, I guess Wicked Phase has kind of been called like emo trap, right? And this record's got clearly way more, even maybe none of that. I mean, it's got like post-punk and house beats and acoustic folk songs. Uh, Can you give some background on the direction you took on this record? Yeah, when I um when I first talked to Run for Cover about uh just about starting the record, you know, that's always a weird thing too because it's like, okay, do you guys want another record? Am I okay to to proceed on this? And and this time around I asked them what they wanted, if there was anything that they wanted specifically. Um because you know, I, I I feel like I have <laughs> a lot of music in me and a lot of different styles of music and, and everything like that. Um, and their advice was just to, um, their suggestion was to maybe just um, try whatever, whatever came over me, you know, and, and let... Um, let this record be an opportunity to just showcase uh, what what they see as the the versatility of my songwriting. I'm not saying that, but they said it, so that you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I got you. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm you know whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, too, I think that there's. I'm sure everyone who's who's. Uh, associated with a specific genre feels that that's limiting in some way and so for them to um you know give me the the go-ahead to to try different things and even you know suggest it um that it it felt good because i don't you know i don't want to be limited to a specific genre um especially not emo rap or anything like that um because it is limiting you know you don't hear about um it's rare that you hear about great emo rap songwriters you know and and what i like most about music is the songwriting process and and you know the other stuff the touring even the recording is just stuff that you you have to do to to progress the you know, you just have to do it right but what what i like most about it is the the writing part of it um so you know i just took their advice and um and tried you know whatever whatever felt natural and and whatever came to me in the um 12 to 18 months that i was writing it that's cool now i i could never imagine I mean, Run For Cover seems like an awesome label. I could never imagine they would want to limit you. But it's interesting to me that you say you kind of asked them for some guidance. I mean, what if they had said, like, make us an emo rap record? I would have done it. I yeah. would have done it. Yeah, I would have done it. And I would have I would have tried my best to, to make the best one possible. You know, that's what Suffer On was, essentially, was, was my attempt at that. If not the best, then at least the most um, concentrated uh and raw version of of uh, a record in that genre um but yeah ultimately they're paying for it and you know 
I'm not, I've been releasing, I self-release stuff, even though I'm in a deal with them. I'm, um, on a non-exclusive contract, you know, so I just owe them a certain number of records. And, and aside from that, I can largely do whatever I want. So if they were to say we want an emo rap album, I would have given that to them. And I would have just, um, you know, if I felt moved to make an 80s album or a dark wave album or something like that, I could have just done that on my own as well. That's that's pretty cool. It's like an mm. interesting perspective, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it's interesting. <laughs> no, no, but I, I am. I you know. <laughs> Okay. Um, what what were uh what were some of the core musical influences you were channeling on this record? Well, when I'm writing a record, I try not to listen to music that will directly influence what comes out of me. Um, for example, the um I think it was uh Corbin's last album came out like right as I started writing this album and I was like I cannot listen to this because uh one I'm going to get like jealous uh, you know assuming that it's like going to be great because he's great and two because I don't want even if I consciously try not to rip off something from him it might seep its way into my subconscious and then make its way into a song where I don't even realize it. Right. So it's the same with, you know, most new, anything new or relatively modern, I, I tend to stay away from when I'm writing. So I was writing, listening to, um, I have a friend who's a, a couple of years older than me and he's really into classic rock and, 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 folk and, and stuff like that and, and classic singer songwriters and he got me on to uh fairport convention and then all of their offshoots richard thompson richard and linda thompson um uh the pentangle stuff like that which is you know a lot of it was 60s and 70s folk that uh incorporated traditional music like uh their interpretations of traditional uh, 15th and 16th century folk songs, as well as like, um, you know, there's an element of like witchy folk music in, in their works too, specifically in the, the Pentangle. And, uh, so that seemed like a good, I was listening to a lot of that and it felt safe to listen to that because I could learn from it. It was something that was new to me and that I, I was really into. And I knew that not a lot of that would make its way into the record um and if it did it would be unrecognizable from its original form and then there's just you know other stuff that i i generally like um moving without movement is essentially what would have been a tiger's jaw song had i been in that band you know it's, it has that that tempo that i a lot of my tiger's jaw songs have if not most of them um but just kind of transformed in a in a way that would make sense for me to play it solo live you know so it has programmed drums and, and synths and stuff like that um i've always been into to dance music since i was young like the first music i was listening to on the radio was that weird like early to mid 90s euro dance invasion that seemed to to creep into top 40 u.s radio and and that stuck with me um, so there's some of that. And then again, just like traditional singer, songwriter, folk stuff. That's sick. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely get what you mean about like 
but there's no way you could really listen to Fairport Convention and then sound just like it, just based on like uh, the way you sing, you know, right. like, yeah. And uh, that's also like, just to nerd out for a second, like, I also, one of my very first loves was like 90s Eurodance stuff, like cool. huge, I'm like, you know, 90s baby. And then I, huge Fairport Convention and Pentagle fan. So that's like a very awesome. Um, yeah, it's cool to hear that that was like kind of informing this stuff. Yeah, I, I was I was really unfamiliar with them. And then um, I think what happened was Richard Thompson was playing in Woodstock. Uh, he did like two nights at, at uh, uh, Lee Von Helm's barn there. My friend wanted someone to go with and, and he just turned me on to them. And um, yeah, it, it, it's like a whole other world that I, I really don't hear too much about, um, at least like from my friends or anything like that. But uh, but really awesome. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I love it. Completely love it. I love finding like whole new pockets of music that I'm totally unfamiliar with and then finding like a whole world within it. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I think what keeps it fun as you kind of get older mm -hmm. and like, yeah. Um, yeah. And like, especially that stuff, I feel like, like you said, you don't always hear too much about it today. Like, feels like there's still some untapped potential because it's like, you know, like how many modern bands are going to be influenced by Joy Division, you know, like, um, right. but to kind of channel something that's less channeled, it's kind of like, oh, like so some there's some it's new here, even though it's 70 years old, you know? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, so from what I understand, uh, this record, one of the things you were focusing on is, uh, the sort of world building aspect of your songwriting. And then you pulled things from movies, video games, comics. Can you kind of like talk about, uh, what you mean by all that? Yeah, of course. Um, early on, uh, in, in, you know, 10 years ago when I was starting with a phase, every song was uh, world building in the sense that it was an attempt to give the project its own identity um, and and also, you know, explore different interests that I have or, or thoughts that I had um, that I, I just hadn't really tapped into uh, creatively. But it was done... Uh, it wasn't done in a deliberate way. It was a lot of buzzwords and, um, you know, very obvious aesthetic references and things like that. Um, and then I got away from that. I think just, you know, naturally, I, 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 every couple of years, I, my songwriting tends to go in a different direction. I got away from that and I, I went back to what I was doing with Tiger Shaw, which was just like, emo stuff essentially you know what i mean and and melodrama and heavy melodrama it, it you know that's what i was doing from 2015 to up through suffer on and then when it came time to, to doing this record uh i thought well, one i just I, you know i didn't want to just redo what i did with suffer on and um i thought a good a good way to do something different would be to go back to what I was originally doing, but with 10 years more experience. I was in my early 20s, then 2021. Now I'm in my early 30s. Um, so approaching that sort of world building with a more deliberate approach, with a more, um, you know, a natural maturity that just comes from having lived a decade longer. 
um, and also a whole new set of influences. Red Dead Redemption 2, it was like crucial for me um, because it has a lot of, um, it's a fully developed world that has a lot of weirdness to it and sadness to it and emotion. Um, and that that really resonated with me. And then a lot of the stuff that I've been into for 10 years, but maybe hadn't distilled um, in Wikifay's writing. Twin Peaks, uh, uh, Grant Morrison comics. I mean, those are the two stuff you can go back to and get more out of every time you, you uh, uh, consume them. And also stuff that doesn't really have definitive answers or resolutions or the meaning is is kind of up for interpretation um that's the stuff that that really interests me and and uh uh you know that that's what i was i was consuming and trying to kind of bottle up on this record i get the sense that when you approach your art like the whole aesthetic the whole picture is important like the album art the vision the videos the mm-hmm. song like i feel like i get the sense that it all ties together for you yeah i'm not you know i felt like up until this record i wasn't super uh focused on the visual side of it because it, i wasn't uh it just doesn't come naturally to me but um you know with with uh, the the right collaborators it, it did come together you know i have now I have Adam, my friend Adam, um, Chase, who, who's been doing my videos for a couple of years now. We're now at the point where, you know, very little planning has to be done. Um, he knows my approach to videos. I know his approach to videos. So it, it kind of just comes together, you know, with an email or two or a text or something like that. Run for Cover suggested, uh, we had a hard time with the album art for this. Just, um, I kept trying stuff from people that was more in a graphic design direction rather than photo- uh, photography. And it just wasn't landing um, the way I had hoped it was because I wasn't really giving a lot of direction either. Again, it's not my strong suit. Um, so I just tend to hope that people come back with whatever's in my brain, you know, whatever. And that doesn't really work all the time. And then Run for Cover suggested that I, I link up with Abreu, who shot the the record cover and a lot of the photos uh, around the the release. And uh, I mean, she got it. Like she knew. You know, I sent her references, and most of the references I sent her were her own pictures. I was unfamiliar with her before, but once I went through her Instagram, I was like, this, this, and this one. Like if we could combine these three with you you know she listened to the record too you know with that sort of insight i think we can we can make it happen and we did so i i am getting better at it i'm learning to be um more vocal in my direction because a lot of it isn't coming from me it's just uh, coming from from collaborators i don't always work well with others but if if i do find someone that um if i do find someone that that i am able to to click with I'm comfortable with with voicing exactly what I want or, you know, at least enough of painting enough of a picture to get what I want delivered. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Abra's work is amazing. And I feel like her aesthetic is really suits this record for sure. Yeah, she's she's great. 
Um, I need, you know, a, a big part of, of uh, one of my weaknesses too, is that I just don't research enough when it comes to photography and, and, um, and stuff like that. So I, I, I need to get better at that. So tell me about the photo on the cover. <laughs> um, in January, uh, actually for, for Christmas, um, yeah, for Christmas, my fiance got me, uh, horseback riding lessons um because of red dead redemption 2 and watching a lot of yellowstone and, and stuff like that and uh and i loved it i loved it and then it was you know a couple days later i posted some polaroids from that and run for cover was like why isn't that the photo like we should just get you back out there on a horse you know saddle up and uh and we'll get you know, a, a good photographer for it, which is how, how I got linked with Abrew. And, uh, and so I called them, I called the, the horse, uh, stable and, uh, it was, <laughs> they weren't like totally aware of like what I was trying to do. They didn't understand that. I just wanted the same thing that I did to, you know, get on a horse but this time a photographer would be walking next to me, right? That's it. And they um <laughs> they had a like some like teenager who works there, this girl, like come out with us and she was the guide, um, and helped us like just like navigate the land and, and stuff like that. And uh and even like midway through the shoot, which was a, a long shoot, we shot all day, maybe ten hours not 10 hours on the horse, but 10 hours of, of shooting and maybe about five hours on the horse. It was like halfway through, she was just like, what is this for? Like what? She asked if I, it was for my high school senior picture, which is really flattering. Um, <laughs> and I was like, no, like, you know, we talked about this, but I was like, I'm a musician and this is for record cover. And then she was like instantly way more into what we were doing and like way more helpful um, and uh, and not like, you know, she uh, she uh, like cut the rate in half at the end of the, the shoot. So, uh, yeah, it was just that. And it was honestly just like Ebru working with the horse, the the trail person to like get the horse like where ebru wanted it for, with the lighting and stuff like that a lot of shouting ebru shouting at me to you know move a certain way like move my head a certain way and then the girl yelling at the horse to move its head a certain way it was like chaos and it was freezing it was probably 15 degrees that day it was so cold but it it worked out pretty well <laughs> There's about 500 pictures of me on that horse from that day. So, <laughs> damn, you got to release yeah. outtakes. I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, so, speaking of collaborators, uh, one of my favorite songs on the new record is the Zola Jesus duet. I feel like your voices sound awesome together. Um, how did that collaboration come about? That was, um, I think, it was Ben Greenberg suggesting that we get. Uh, like just a female vocalist on the song and run for cover suggested Zola. And I did not think that was possible. 
um, it was like the same day I had a call with Run for Cover when we were recording that song. Had their call, and I was like, "Hey, by the way, if you know any, if you have any suggestions," and and they suggested Zola. I had been a fan of hers since I was a teenager, and I asked Ben if you know what he thought of that. And uh, those two are label mates, I think. Or Ben does a lot of work with Sacred Bones. I'm not sure if his if Uniform is on Sacred Bones or not, but um, he just emailed her like the song, and then two days later we had it back. It was so easy. I really still can't believe it. That's so awesome. Yeah. Have you uh, have you met her in person yet? Not in person. No, we've just talked on Instagram and stuff like that. Um. So yeah, I mean, even having Ben on the record, this is your first time working with him too, right? Yeah. Yeah. How did you first cross paths with Ben, and uh, what was working with him uh, and and Darcy like? I, mean, I know he, you've worked um, with Darcy in the past. Yeah. He. So Ben was just on a list of produ- You know the way. I've been recording these records with run for cover is uh, I'll, I'll make all the songs in Ableton. And then normally I'll work with a, a producer. Who's like one of my friends to clean them up. And then we go to a, a studio and, 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 you know, pull it all together. And uh, we did that with suffer on with doves and, and will yip. So, and I like that approach a lot. Um, because there's kind of like a buffer in between me and the final producer, you know, there's someone who, who can um, get it to where I want to be, who I know and I'm familiar with. And that was Darcy's role. You know, I, I love Darcy. Um, I think his production is incredible. And uh, so I knew that I wanted him on it. And he's so like versatile too. Uh, So what I did was I would send Darcy all my, stems he would either clean them up or make new ones or whatever and then uh run for cover sent me a list of like 20 people uh it was uh tom from run for cover sent a list of like 20 producers um that he suggested and then i think jeff responded saying that ben would be uh like the most interesting one because he's normally working on like heavier music but but still darker and and uh and so we just reached out to Ben like that and working with him was awesome. I, I went to his studio. Um, we did a lot of pre-production, which is something that I, I haven't really done, but he took my stems and Darcy's stems and kind of put together what he liked from each along with his own ideas that we would record in the studio with like live instruments. And, uh, he did that like all before I went in, uh, and uh, so then I just went to New York for a couple of weeks and, and, you know, every day he just had a chart that had like what we needed to do for each song. And it was so easy and uh, it moved so fast, it really fast. I, I don't even think we used all of the time that, that we had booked because uh, we were doing like a song or two a day. So it, uh, it was great. I, I would love to work with him more um on anything you know he seems like uh even if i had like a full band or something like that i would want ben's hands on it because he he just seems to have great ideas and knows how to execute what i what i'm after he definitely seems super versatile i feel like his name shows up on a lot of different types of records yeah that's what attracted me to him too when i was you know similar to photographers when it comes to producers like 
unless they're like beat producers, I'm not really familiar with like who's making records and uh, uh, his just his credentials um, were enough to get me interested. And and Jeff suggesting it because Jeff uh, Jeff doesn't weigh in creatively a, a lot on you know the label side. Um, uh, so for him to speak up and be like, you know, Ben Greenberg should be it that, that carried a lot of weight with me too, but also, yeah, like that, just that wide, um, wide discography was, was promising. Yeah. So what are your, uh, kind of plans for performing this stuff live? I mean, I know you, are you doing it all solo with like backing tracks and I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know yet. I I need to figure that out. I believe the majority of it will be live uh like singing with backing tracks. Um I asked Ben Greenberg that too like what how am I going to play these live and he was like just do it the way you normally do and then play the acoustic songs like with a guitar. So there will be that um and we'll see what else I can get together um, in the meantime. You know, I don't I don't have enough time <laughs> to, like, put a band together and 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 practice that yet. But uh, we're going to be doing two shows, two release shows uh, that are branded events called Eternal Twilight. Um, Wikiface Prince Eternal presents Eternal Twilight, one in uh, one in Los Angeles in August and then one in uh, Brooklyn in September. And they're going to be like more like curated events, mini festivals, maybe, you know, eight to 10 acts from like a wide range of genres to, to, you know, try and hammer home the, just like the, you know, the wide range of influences on this record. Um, and also, like, uh, maybe get, like, a magician there or some sort of, uh, you know, interactive element that, that will make these feel less like a traditional show and, and more like some sort of event or, like, an art opening or something like that. That's awesome. I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you. Um, so I love all this talk about the new record. I want to go back in time, if that's cool. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you've been making music for nearly 20 years at this point. Um, what were some of the moments, maybe a show you saw, an album you heard, none of the above, that made you realize like playing music or being part of a music community is something you might like to spend your life doing? Um, early on, uh, when I was about 12, how old are you in sixth grade? Probably like 11 th- or 12. I think like right? 11 turning 12, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. It would have been then, um, going into middle school, uh, some of my friends had older brothers that were just into, you know, they were in punk bands and, and were putting on shows. And that was new to me. Uh, but I loved it. Like, I, you know, I was at that point, I was probably just into like Blink-182 and rap. Uh, but but that really appealed to me. I remember going to a talent show that year, like a school talent show. And, um, there was a couple of people from the, the Menzingers who, who went to middle school with me. They were a couple of years older. Um, and they played, uh, there was like two 
groups of them, and one of them played uh, Maxwell Murder by Rancid, and uh, the other one played, uh, I think they played Roots Radical by Rancid, two Rancid songs, same talent show, and uh, that was like, <laughs> you know, that was it for me when it came to getting into music, and then, you know, they were putting on shows, um, Tom from the Men's Ears, his younger brother, was was one of my close friends in middle school. He also ended up playing in Tiger's Jaw for a little bit. But um uh you know, going over his house and, and Tom would be having band practice and and later, you know, other friends with older brothers and stuff like that. And just seeing, you know, when you're twelve years old, thirteen years old, the people who are fifteen and sixteen seem like the coolest people in the world, right? Especially if they're active and doing things and organizing shows. And they have like their own style and stuff. So that it was just like emulating that and and learning from them. Like, how do I, you know, how do I play power chords? How do I, you know, they help me with guitar and stuff like that. How do I play ska upstrokes? Like, you know, explain this to me. And then and then like going on their computers and burning CDs and stuff like that was um all just like really formative i was just consuming so much new music uh and you know without a real way of like uh doing anything with it it was just a learning process but but really it was like from then from like 12 ages 12 to 15 or 16 that i was just in a, a constant state of of media consumption all with punk music and then um and then uh, when, um, like in high school, I started, I was in, you know, the same mindset, but I was branching out a little bit. I uh, got really into Bright Eyes and like Saddle Creek Records. Saddle Creek used to have like, um, used to upload MP3s to their website of like singles from albums and stuff like that. And that was major for me, just branching out into, into you know, singer-songwriter world. Um, and also going to the library and just taking out, I think you could take out like 10 CDs at a time. I would, I would just pick random ones, go home, burn them, uh, or upload them to my computer, take them back, and do the same thing. And it was that, and it, you know, it was just, um, at that point I was like, you know, I could do, uh, I could be in an indie band or something like that, right? And now these these doors are opening um, uh, for whatever I want to do. And that's what Tiger's Jaw ended up being. It wasn't, you know, it didn't translate to the stuff. It, it wasn't a one-to-one -one correlation of what I was listening to to what I was making. I just didn't have the tools to really understand how to do that. Um, but But that was like the 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 journey there was you know looking up to friends older brothers and and copying what they were doing yeah um i'm pretty sure i've seen the menzingers do rancid covers so i guess some things never change no <laughs> no they i'm sure they have i know they play uh they play knowledge by operation ivy too mm. uh, uh if someone's string breaks or something like that that's one of their go-tos um yeah they but all those guys, they were, they were, um, and they were kind, like they were, you know, they could have been, they could have not given me any time, uh, 
because I was just their friend's younger brother, but they were, they were really kind of my first day of high school. I went to like a, a new high school, um, where I didn't have a lot of friends and I sat with the Menzingers like the first week of school before I, I got lunch, uh, you know, they were nice enough to do that, uh, until I like found my own people, you know, but, but, um, yeah, you know, they, I, I really do feel like I, I owe a lot to them and I talk about them a lot, but, um, it's really all I can do, you know, because I am so grateful. And that set me up on a path where I could make music full time now in my 30s. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. What you were saying, too, about like very early Tiger's Jaw and you're like, we could be an indie band, but maybe like all the tools weren't there. I mean, I always think about like it's named after a microphone's lyric. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that first record is pretty kind of like lo-fi indie vibes. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, when you like, would you have viewed the band as an emo band when you formed or like, did that only kind of come later? No, it came later. You know what happened was, was we started um, playing shows with, with like punk and hardcore bands. And then that influence, um, you know, it was like, I saw what songs were getting reactions from other bands at shows. So I was like, maybe we could be a little bit heavier. Maybe we could incorporate more punk or, or emo or whatever into it it wasn't like that conscious but it was like hey we're the softest band at every show we play and i would i would like to be a little bit more accepted especially when like we're playing with title fight on a regular basis you know what i mean it doesn't it <laughs> you know i don't want to stand out too much or be too much of an outlier uh so that's what happened there yeah that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel like that whole, I mean, that whole Scranton scene with like, you know, you guys, Menzingers, Captain were sinking, like now it's like the stuff of legend, you know, to like, I mean, what, uh, what were the, what was the scene like, like just kind of before all these bands started to take off on a national level? It was, I mean, it was awesome. It was, you know, when I said that uh, I found my own people after eating lunch with the Menzingers, it was Captain were sinking. Like they became, you know, they were my friends. They were like my age and stuff like that. Um, it it was just, uh, you know, it was cool. It was me and Ben from Tiger's Jaw were doing sound uh, for this venue called Test Pattern. Uh, it was like an art gallery, and they would ha they would have shows there sometimes, and and. Uh, me and Ben were just going to every show to the point where they were like, Hey, can you work these? Um, and then that gave us the freedom to book our own shows. So it was just like regularly Tiger's Jaw, Captain were singing the Menzingers or some iteration of, of those groups. Um, and even before that, a big influence on Tiger's Jaw were these uh, local indie bands. There was a, a record label called prison jazz records and they were, you know, if we were in our, our mid teens, they were probably in their, you know, 25, 30 range. And they were awesome. Um, and, but they weren't playing the same types of shows that Tiger's Jaw or the men's singers would have been playing. And what Tiger's Jaw ended up doing was like booking those bands too, you know, bands that sounded like the kinks or, or something like that on these shows. Um, and it just so now we had like a pool of 10 bands that we can pull from locally at any point. And then, you know, also bringing touring people or, you know, provide a, a another stop for touring people. Uh, and it it's crazy. Like, you, 
I kind of think I I think I thought that that was just how every city was, you know, until later when I was like, wait a minute, like <laughs> it is not how every how every city was, and it you know it's not what what Scranton is now either. Um, not really sure why, uh, but um, I don't know. It's just crazy to to look back on and and see the the success there and it's also validating to be like yeah i thought these people were really talented and then they get signed and and you know they're still playing music so it's it's like okay i was (laughs) i wasn't totally off about that yeah it's like wild how many like legitimately like signed touring successful bands from that world like formed as like high school kids and it's just the same band now I know it's crazy. Even um it was funny like when when Tiger's Jaw was just me and Ben and uh Brianna joined later, we would have like a rotating cast of like a rhythm section. Um all different people, like whoever we could get and uh and then Dennis who who eventually joined Tiger's Jaw was having shows at his house when his parents went away, he would have shows. And uh he he booked us and even that like he went to a different school he hit me up on instant messenger he was just a fan of tiger show um even him just inviting us to play that show with with three man cannon um who's also had success like at the you know the indie level opened up a whole new world where like now all of my friends from this public school are friends with people from this other public school and private school and like those people are still making music today be it three-man canon or or i mean there's a ton of bands you know like iterations of of uh of groups of people that did meet in high school or from those original high school connections and maybe that's just how society works i don't know but it, it is really crazy to see like uh, yeah I, I can't explain it really it's definitely surreal and I think a bit unique. I mean, um, cause yeah. Uh, so how did you just, you know, you're talking about like meeting bands from other schools and stuff. How did you start to meet like neighboring Pennsylvania bands like title fight and bounce of composure? Oh uh, man, I have no idea. I think, um, we used to, Tiger Straw used to play at, um, a basement in, uh, in Wilkesbury, uh, called the black lodge. Um, very small basement 40 i mean it was not much bigger than this which is like 40 feet you know and they would have like crazy shows there really really crazy shows like big hardcore shows um they would get a lot of a lot of indie indie bands to play and so tiger's jaw um started playing there a lot and that's how the the title fight connection formed um and then from there you know, meeting balance and composure, getting introduced to the the run for cover guys and and stuff like that. And and for whatever reason, like that just seemed to be the next step of who we played with. I and I I guess that would probably be more Ben and Brianna, um, like forging those connections, uh, because it seemed to happen, like. I don't, it didn't seem to happen with my involvement, not saying that I didn't want it to happen. I just don't really, all of a sudden we were playing with these bands and, and I don't know, you know, I, but I, I, that's my gut is that it's just from playing that basement in, in Wilkesbury. The first time we played there, um, 
I was at a, a playing another house show, and I heard that I think it was Thanksgiving. Who who uh, Adrian Orange, who was signed to uh, Phil Elvram's label, was playing at the Black Lodge like as a tour stop, and I called the the guy whose house it was, and I was like, "I'm in this band. You have to get us on this show." Like, um, and he did. He was like, "Yeah, you know, I probably would have put you on anyway," and uh. And then it was like the you know the next week, Cold World would have been playing in the same basement, like forty person basement. It's just it, it's funny how that stuff works. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So when did you start to realize like something was happening like outside of the local level? Like you would play a different city and kids would know the words. It was after we did the tour, uh, our first tour with Title Fight, which I think would have been their first tour as well, and. I mean, that was crazy because, yeah, I think it was their first tour and seeing how popular they were already and then just getting the residual, like, uh, you know, whatever, however that happens, you know. <laughs> um, but it was that. And then as we kept playing those, like, uh, you know, those Bounce and Composure shows or shows with, with Daylight, Super Heaven or whoever, more with Title Fight, that's when I noticed, like, stuff picking up um, we signed with Run for Cover right around that time. It was right after the the first title fight tour that we signed with Run for Cover. Jeff saw us uh, at one of those shows, and I mean, I think that helped us a lot too because uh, I remember even then, anything that Run for Cover was putting out was like it felt important and uh, uh, it felt like you know something new. And something that you could get in on the ground level on, um, you know, like Man Overboard or Transit or bands like that, you know. And uh, and I think it was like just that, like be, having that connection helped with people starting to, you know, become aware of us, listening to us on their own at, a, you know, a level bigger than the local level. Yeah, that that era was definitely nuts. It did feel just like like every new band I'd run for cover was a big deal. And like, it just, Mm -hmm. it felt like every day or week or month, you just stumbled upon a new, like genuinely awesome band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to fast forward a bit. I want to ask about Charmer. Mm -hmm. So you, Dennis and Pat already knew you were leaving the band when you decided to write the record. That's correct. Right. My, my memory is murky there. I think we had already booked, I mean, I don't know exactly when. I can tell you the day I decided to leave Tiger Shaw. It was a, it was a show that we played at Union Transfer. Let me see if I can find that. It would have been like 2013, maybe or 2012. Uh oh, boy, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, here it is. Okay, so it would have been November. <laughs> I'm looking at Setlist FM. Uh, it would have been November 30th of 2012. We played with Title Fight for the Floral Green release show. One of their release shows. It was that after, like on the way to that show. For whatever reason, I was like, I think I'm done. Like I'm not having fun anymore. I'm getting anxious about. It's just I'm just not having fun. Uh, and then we didn't really have much going 
on for a couple months. It was, you know, writing Charmer and stuff like that. And then it just got to the point uh, early spring of 2013 where plans were starting to be made for the future tours and stuff like that. And uh, at that point, everyone would have been like out of college. So it would have been the time to move forward. So, yeah, that's when I decided to to leave um, before like committing to to a tour. I think the tour was already booked, but in, you know, in my head, I was not going to go on that tour. And yeah, I guess we would have been writing Charmer in the months leading up to that. We always wrote separately. Like Ben and I always wrote separately. There was never a, you know, Hey, for these two weeks, we're going to a studio to write the album. It was always like when we had enough songs, we would do it. You know, we would learn them and then, and then, uh, record them. Uh, so I, yeah, I would have had I would have had almost all of my songs for that record done, and then I quit the band. But studio time was booked, um, and it, and you know we made it clear like if you guys are okay with us playing on the record, we we would like to because I had five or six songs on the record, so that would have kind of thrown thrown a wrench in the works too. Um. So now I'm. Like, just like based on hearing you talk about it now, I'm sure you were just like leaving the band is what I have to do. But did you, I mean, that record ended up kind of being a bit of a breakthrough for Tiger's Jaw. Did you, one, have any sense that would happen? And two, once it did, did you kind of have any feelings about like, well, these songs I wrote are out in the world, they're catching on and I can't go on the road and I can't play them? Uh, I mean, I didn't want to play them. You know what I mean? Because I knew it wasn't those songs. I, I love those songs. I think cool and charmer are two of my best, <laughs> two of the best songs I've ever written. But um, I didn't want it was it was playing the old songs that really killed me, like playing songs that I wrote when I was sixteen and seventeen. As a twenty-three year old, it was just not working for me. I felt uncomfortable with it, and in excuse me, what made it worse was uh, was that the old songs were what people loved. Um, and I just felt like, man, if this is what you like from us, it, 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 there's, there's a disconnect between, between me, at least me personally in the fan base. If the, if these are the songs you like, and this is what you want from this band, I can't be a part of this band because I hate these older songs. You know, I, I, you know, your songwriting ability from when you're 16 years old to 23 is, is huge, you know? Um, so that's how I felt, at least for me, that that's how I felt. Um, no, I wasn't bummed. I wasn't bummed. I, I honestly feel like I had the best of both worlds there because the songs were out and I didn't have to play them, but it's still my voice on the record. I, I felt pretty good about it actually. Um, and at that time, you know, my interest was, the writing and recording of new songs. That's all I wanted to do. Tiger's Jaw was moving too slowly for me. I think any band that's the, you know, I have that problem with any band is that it just moves too slow. Um, the, the ability to write and record and then release a song in the same day. Um, what I was able to in early Wicca phase was exactly what I wanted out of music. Uh, so no, I mean, it it was, I felt fine about it. Uh, I really did. I even played with Tiger's Jaw, not in the band, but I played 
Wickerface played a, a show in Scranton with Tiger's Jaw a couple months later. Um, and even that, like, I didn't feel sad about it or anything like that. You know, I was I was happy that Ben and Brianna were doing what they wanted to do and continuing to do what they wanted to do. And I was happy that they didn't have the the friction that me, Pat, and Dennis brought because I do feel like Tiger Shaw was largely um a a band of two bands. It was it was Ben and Brianna. Um you know they were more Ben and Brianna were were not business minded, but they did know how to advance the band and how to um just what steps needed to be taken, right? And and they knew that there's a, a little bit of a game that you have to play if you want to be successful in music. Uh Pat and Dennis never wanted to play that game ever, 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 ever. There was no compromise for them whatsoever. Um, and then I was somewhere in the middle, whatever, you know, sometimes I would stick with Pat and Dennis. Sometimes I'd be on the side of Ben and Brianna, but, but there was that constant friction that made touring towards the end, not fun. Um, and, and I, yeah, just really not fun and, and tense and stressful, you know, and that's never what I wanted music to be. Uh, yeah, sorry. That was a long answer. Sometimes I, I think back about Tiger Shaw and I like realize things, you know, now that I didn't realize 10 years ago. And it sounds like revisionist history, but really it's just like, oh, wait, like that made sense to me now. Like, you know, I can see how things did go wrong <laughs> there or something like that. Um, and I have those moments all the time. Anytime I talk about Tiger Shaw. No, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, And like, it's fascinating to hear these stories and hear these reflections now, you know, because I'm sure in the moment, you just it's hard to have that much clarity about it. Yeah, I was, you know, I was very immature when I was in Tiger Shaw, too. I was, I would let Ben and Brianna make every decision because my interest, I was already losing interest and my real interest with the band was just like, Playing show, I liked playing shows. Uh, I like playing new songs at shows and stuff like that. Um, and I liked the attention from it. Uh, and you know, I liked like drinking beers with John Simmons before we played with Balancing Composure or something like that, right? But it, those aren't the the things in music that you really. Um, that's not why you should be in it. You know, there's no long term happiness there. It's just momentary you know stuff like that so i don't know it's just it was a tricky tricky thing and when you're 22 23 you don't really i felt like i didn't know anything and i was uh just kind of lashing out in my own way because i wasn't mature enough yet to come to the decision that maybe tiger's job wasn't for me Mm -hmm. yeah now not only did you kind of leave like you know tour life and just you know, following that type of path for a band behind, you also left rock music behind. You did Wicked mm-hmm. Phase and you kind of started doing, again, the emo rap thing, which at the time also was like a bit of a novel concept. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of inspired you to take your music in that direction? First, it was just, my my goal was to make like 
electronic music of any sort, whatever I could, uh, bought a bunch of keyboards or had a bunch of keyboards, was recording them into, into an eight track recorder. Um, I would use loops, drum loops that were on keyboards or like garage band built in stuff, but I, I wasn't really that, uh, great with it. Like I just wasn't familiar with like using an online recording thing or computer based. Um, and then uh, at that time, like I was just on Tumblr all the time. Tumblr was such a major part of of Wikiphase, and uh, and it was you know similar to like I was just learning about all this new cool stuff that felt more like me than the world of Tiger's Jaw did. And um, the one person that kept uh, coming up in my in my Tumblr feed was Coldheart from Gothboy Click. And he had like a good, uh, he had a good Tumblr. Like he would like post like cool images and stuff like that, but would also post beats and then be like, Hey, these beats are available on my band camp or stuff like that. And then, um, it, you know, that kind of just, I knew I wasn't going to be like rapping over them. So I was like, maybe this could be something right. If I, um, sing, if I write lyrics, it's almost like I'm in a band where I'm just the singer and, and the band is writing the music and all I have to do is write the lyrics, which is what I like doing anyway. Um, and that's how that kind of took off from, from that. Now, uh, and you've kind of said this in other interviews, so I'm, I'm quoting you. I'm, I'm, it's not me saying it. Uh, you said like, it, it was almost a little bit of a rough start. Like you weren't, it was a new thing and you were still kind of finding yourself like so kind of mm -hmm. walk me through how you started to meet like other like-minded musicians many of whom would end up making up goth boy click and kind of like really start to find the sound of figure out what wicca face could be it was all um i mean it all started on tumblr with me meeting cold heart i think me being in tiger's jaw carried more weight than i thought uh when i'd be you know i reached out to him and then he introduced me um, just through him. I just started meeting all these other people. He, he lived in California at the time. Um, and he had his own set of like internet friends. And then I got introduced to them and, you know, people like Horsehead, um, NetArb. And then when I met NetArb, NetArb introduced me to almost everyone. 90% of the people that, that I... I I'm working with to this day are like through him just because he's that's his talent like one of his talents he's like the you know he's like a friend a friendship a and r or something like that and um so yeah i mean early on it was just like a lot of digging trying to find producers and stuff like that while also making my own beats still and then um through it had to have been through through Coldheart and NetArb that I got introduced to the Thrax House people, which was a uh, Seattle it was Seattle and LA based internet rap crew. Kind of um, was an offshoot of Raider Clan or came out of Raider Clan, and then and that was like a group chat with. 20 people and then all of a sudden now i have all these built-in producers like i have a, a built-in network of producers like fishnark that's where i met fishnark i had cold heart horsehead um that 
that I could kind of work with when it came to to the production side, to artwork, um, anything really, you know, mixing, stuff like that. It was like a whole built-in resource. And then um, I think what happened was just that Thrax House, there's too many people in it, <laughs> like way too many people in it. People were being added, you know, every day that uh, – because it wasn't just musicians either. It was like also like graffiti artists and then just like friends of friends. Um so then somehow uh, we, you know, I think it was just like me, Coldheart, Horsehead, and Fishnark were kind of talking more uh, on our own than like than we were in the group. And that's how, how Gothboy clicked started. Um, I met Doves around that time. He just emailed me beats and they were like some of the best beats I, ever, I had heard at that point. Um, and... Uh, and then what happened was I, you know, someone booked a show with all of us in LA and, and, uh, it's my first time playing there as Wikifaze, probably the first time playing like anywhere outside of Pennsylvania or New York as Wikifaze. And then, uh, um, that's where like, at that point it was like, okay, now I found like my people and there are, there are people who will come see this and, uh. I mean, yeah, that's how it how it really started. I have no idea what year that was, or in two thousand fifteen or something like that. Maybe. Mm. Yeah, that's like that's awesome. How did you uh, how did you first meet Lil Peep, and how did you react to his music when you first heard it? That would have been through Horsehead and Coldheart. Um, he had moved to L.A. from Denver, I believe, um, and. Uh, Ned Arb showed me his music, um, and, you know, it was just pretty obvious that he knew what he was doing, <laughs> you know, he wasn't, like, a kid trying to figure it out, it was pretty fully formed, uh, early on, um, so I was into it, and then, you know, he started hanging out with, with the goth boy click LA contingency, and, uh, Horsehead wanted to add him to the group. And I was like, I don't even know him. Um, and it, at that time, it was like me, Coldheart, and Horsehead kind of doing the decision making. Um, and uh, I was like, I don't know him. So he called me and, uh, <laughs> and was just like, yeah, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, I'm about to... Uh, I'm about to sign some deal, which I think ended up being his his first access entertainment deal. Um, but he was like, you know, I, I would love to be a part of Gothboy Click before the ball starts rolling on me, you know, before this machine <laughs> gets its its talons in me. Um, because I think it could help you guys too, you know? And he's like, and I've been a fan of, of yours. And it was pretty much that. It was like, okay, let's let's put him in. Why not? And um, because he was genuine, like he wasn't like so many of the people that I met at that time were just like, um, I don't know, they just weren't genuine. You know what I mean? They were they were just also trying to find themselves and and get themselves over and make a name for themselves and their push their career. I did not get that impression from from Gus. He was just smart kid 
and and well spoken and and whatever. Um, so I met him. We had a show in L.A. Like a two weeks later, it was billed as Goth Boy Click, and uh, and he played with us. And I met him at that show for the first time. And uh, yeah, and he was a fan. He was a legitimate fan. He, you know, we played a group set, and he was singing harmonies to every every one song. It was pretty incredible. He def. I watched the uh, the documentary that came out, and I mean, just even from that, which I mean, it's crazy because there's so much like real time footage because we're in the era of smartphones. Yeah. Um, and he just seems really genuine. Yeah, he is. I have not watched that documentary, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but he is genuine. He definitely was genuine, a hundred percent. It's also like it's it's bittersweet, but I feel like his impact on sort of the broader mainstream culture, like didn't completely reveal itself until after he passed. Um, yeah. You know, like, like it's like, do you get like the machine gun Kelly pop punk record without Lil peep? You know, like, I don't, I don't know if you do. No, you don't. Let's just say you don't get it. He's not wearing those like anime hats and he's not, no, he's not doing any of this without, no, he's not. <laughs> So 2018 um, is uh, is when you sign Wicked Face to run for cover, uh, mm-hmm. reuniting you with the label that helped break Tiger's jaw. Um, what made you decide to be like, all right, let's go back to there with this project now? That was in the works. Um, well, it was, uh, I don't know how far along the talks were, but there was definitely you know, preliminary talks about seeing whether we could, we would be a good fit, you know, whatever. Um, then peep died. And then, um, I was approached. (laughs) That's when, like, I think we all started, everyone in goth boy Twitch started getting like major label offers, be it as a group or as individuals. And, um, so for a couple months, the run for cover thing was on the back burner while I just entertained other stuff, major label stuff. Um, and it just didn't seem appealing from the start. It wasn't appealing because I knew that they wouldn't know who I was had peep not died. Right. And I, you know, it was pretty obvious to see that they were just trying to, to, you know, get the next, Gus locked in right and I know I'm not that I know I'm not that guy like I'm not my skill set is totally different than peeps and it was just like after a couple of months of that where I was like I think I'm going to be happiest with run for cover because they're not asking me to change anything they're not asking they're not promising anything that seems skeptical or like you know, that I would doubt would actually happen and end up costing me my career or getting stuck in some sort of label deal where I can't put out records or or anything like that. Um, I don't have faith at the time, especially even then I knew like it does not make sense for me to sign a (laughs) um, million dollar, let's just hypothetically say million dollar record deal because I don't know that I could make a record label a million dollars back, right? But I could make a record label a couple thousand dollars back, right? And then collect on the royalties for for the rest of my life and um and still have that creative freedom. So it was then I also saw how much a lot of these um 
bigger labels. There was two of them specifically. How much they did not want me to sign with Run for Cover, and that kind of pushed me towards Run Run for Cover. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was like what they're saying about Run for Cover is what I like about Run for Cover. You know that they are more of a a boutique thing, and it's not. You know, I I know everyone who works there, and I know the inner workings of the label. I know who does what. I know what they're able to offer. What I would need to bring to the table on my own. Um, so then it was like, yeah, let's just, uh, you know, it was pretty much like, hey, can you guys send me a contract so I could sign it and like we can just put this matter to rest? And then it was after that, every, all of those, um, people who who were approaching me after after peep died just went away um just gone which is fine by me you know yeah some of them also got uh canceled too because that was right around the time when we started like uh when people started getting canceled at like you know big companies and stuff like that but worked out pretty well for me because uh yeah i don't know then i don't have like some weird association with these guys who i barely know and you know whatever yeah, it it doesn't really sound like they would have got where you were coming from either. No, I I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I th- I think it's cool that your first single for Run for Cover was with Georgia Mac as like one of the early Camp Cope songs had a Tiger's Jaw lyric like reference in the lyrics, and then they signed a Run for Cover. I feel like it's like this full circle thing to kind of make your Run for Cover debut with Georgia. Yeah, Georgia had a a wicker face tattoo early on too, like way before I was signed with Run for Cover. Um uh and yeah, I I didn't know her at the time. I knew Cam Cope, but I I didn't know her personally and she's become a good friend of mine. She actually did um merch for my <laughs> the last LA show I played when I needed someone in a pinch. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um so with Suffer on, I feel like you kind of started to bring back more guitar-based stuff after a while of not doing that. What made you at that point, you know, pick up a guitar again um, after years of more beats and stuff? I think it was knowing that I was going to work with Doves on that record. Um, And he had done a lot of great sampling with acoustic guitars. Um, So I just thought that 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 would work. Um, and what I like most about his production is he has like really frantic drum sounds, um, like hi-hat patterns and like snare rolls and stuff like that. So I thought a good balance to that would be like a more natural approach with, with acoustic guitar. Um, and that's really all it was. And then, uh, so we, we did that and then, um, when we when I went to the studio with Will Yip, really nothing changed from the original demos except we re-recorded their guitar and that was it. But yeah, it was just just to like combat the you know, over the top hi hat patterns and stuff that, that Doves does. Mm-hmm. And then the following year you reunite with Pat and Dennis in Paper Pain. <laughs> um I mean, it's first time the three of you were in a band together in six or seven years. Uh, how did doing that compare to where you had left off in Tiger's Jaw? We had attempted to start that band like multiple times. I think starting in 2016, we played once 
And then the same thing the next year. It was always just like once a year we would get together and play like the same songs that we played the year before or whatever. And um, and then uh, I, I don't really know like what led to us organizing because again we were not the organizers in Tiger's Jaw, right? So um. I, I don't really know how that happened. I think it just we just had enough songs and um and decided to record them. Our friend Matt, who who's in Three Man Cannon, also might be in Pay for Pain now. I'm not sure where we landed on that. He might be in the bit. I don't know. Uh we haven't had a practice in a while, but <laughs> um he has a studio uh in the Poconos. So that him having that kind of made it more of a less of like, okay, we have studio time booked. We have to get this together more of like, let's go to Matt's for the weekend and record, see what comes out of it. And, uh, yeah, that's how that happened. But, um, you know, we're all over the place, uh, geographically and also, um, not mentally, but mentally. (laughs) You were saying before about Tiger's jar, like you'd write a lot of your stuff alone. Like, uh, is it the same for pay for pain? Like when, do you just kind of write? Yeah everything that becomes so uh i guess when you're writing then like are you like in your head this is a wicked face song this is a pay for pain song or um the line is blurred now uh it's really blurred like no there's no real there's no real uh i don't know i i i don't even know how i decided what songs from this record like this new record what would what would lead them to be on the record versus going to pay for pain? I have no idea. Um, now it's like uh, I have maybe eight or nine Wickerface songs written that aren't recorded that could just go to pay for pain, um, and they would make sense. Uh, but it's also looking at what Dennis is doing. You know, Dennis uh, after the first. Well, I mean, he has, you know, we kind of split the songwriting on the first Pay for Pain EP. And the second one is largely him. I have two songs on it, but but the bulk of it and the, the direction of it is all his. So now it's just um, kind of like, let's see. We need to get together and like figure out what what our our catalog is going to look like moving forward before I can really decide what goes to, to what. And I'm also happy to be loose with it and um have pay for pain songs appear on wikifay's records and vice versa that new uh the last year pay for pain put out an ep it was like kind of a hardcore ep yeah it's mostly dennis okay yeah that was i mean you know you guys would tigers would have been on hardcore bills back in the day but i don't know if i've ever heard you guys make music like that no n- no there's a uh, one tiger's jaw song might be uh static i think it's a ben ben song where dennis screams at the end uh that's the closest we ever got to that but yeah this this new one was all dennis and and that's um you know that's like the type of one of the types of music that me and dennis bond over um i but again i i don't really know like if that's what pay for pain sounds like now or what i i, I don't know we're not the best we're not the best people for 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 
you know, making a decision like that, like a big decision as to what a band sounds like. I get it. Um, yeah. So this has been really fun. Is there anything else that you want to say like about the new record or anything to plug? I don't think I have anything else to say about it. I hope people like it. Um, that's really all I can say. I hope that, um, you know, I hope that one thing that I didn't expect with Tiger's Jaw was that those records would have lasting power. And I, I hope that the records that I'm making now will have that same lasting power. Um, and I feel this, you know, especially strongly about this new record that it, um, maybe it takes some time for people to, to digest, but, but hopefully that just, you know, gives it more longevity. I guess that's really all I have to say about it. Um, two shows, two release shows coming up. What face Prince eternal presents eternal twilight, August 5th in LA at the echo plex and September 9th in uh, Brooklyn at Warsaw. Um, probably some more shows being announced soon. That's it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Adam. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks again to Adam. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, give it a good review, subscribe, tell your friends about it. It only takes a second to do stuff like that. And it really goes a long way. And we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. See you next time.